I'm Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics, and my favorite Christmas movie is Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. I'm Garrick, and I believe the greatest Christmas movie of all time is Die Hard. Well, it's only a few days until Christmas, and at some point during the Christmas season, in almost every church, someone will read these words. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. But there's a problem here. It seems from Roman history as if Quirinius didn't become the governor of Syria until about a decade after the birth of Jesus. And so how do we deal with this discrepancy between the biblical text and Roman history? In the first half of this week's program, renowned New Testament scholar Rob Plummer joins us to investigate the perplexing problem of Governor Quirinius. Rob is the co-author of the book, Going Deeper with New Testament Greek from our friends at B&H Academic. You can learn more about the book, Going Deeper with New Testament Greek, at bhacademic.com. And then, in the second half of the program, Garrick and I explore death and resurrection in a song by Mike and the Mechanics. It's the birth of Jesus, the death, the resurrection, and everything in between, this week on Three Chords and the Truth. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Today we welcome esteemed New Testament scholar, Dr. Robert Plummer, to consider one of the most perplexing problems in the Gospels. But before we get to that topic, Dr. Plummer, I have some other more important questions for you, beginning with this one. What is your favorite Christmas movie? Well, my family and I, we do love the movie Elf. That's how we start. We have Thanksgiving. Yes. The day after Thanksgiving is when I finally allow my wife to play Christmas music and we break out the decorations and it all starts with a, a watching of the elf. Yes. Last, last night, my wife actually gave me a full-size cutout cardboard elf, Will Ferrell in his elf costume. I came around the corner and there it was and my, my wife and kids were all like, yay! In all of his yellow-tided glory. Yes. That's the great. dog is terrified of it. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> it's kind of funny to watch. Well, according to historical records, Quirinius became the governor of Syria around the year 6 AD. During that time, there was a well-known census that resulted in a revolt. But Jesus wasn't born during that time. Jesus was born 10 years earlier, around the year 4 BC, when King Herod was still alive. But before we even get to that question, let's first deal with some more basic question, the term BC. This means before Christ. So how on earth was Christ born in 4 BC? So what it sounds like is that Jesus was born four years 
before Christ. Christ was born four years before Christ, and this is a miracle in itself. His first miracle. Was that he was born four years before himself. But of course, this method of reckoning didn't actually start until the 6th century AD, which is Anno Domini, is what AD stands for, and that means year of our Lord. And there was a monk named Dionysius Exigius, and he figured out what he thought was the time that Jesus was born so that he could count years from after Christ, from Anno, from after the birth of Christ, Anno Domini, year of our Lord. But he was about four years off in his calculation. So Jesus was not actually born four years before himself or about five years of somewhere in that range before himself. He was actually born at the same time as himself, which is always convenient time for us to be born is at the same time as ourselves. But the question and the problem we're looking at today with Dr. Rob Plummer is this idea of, is there a contradiction between Roman history and the New Testament at this point? Because you see, we know from the New Testament that King Herod ruled Judea when Jesus was born, and Herod died somewhere around the year that we know as 4 BC. According to historians like Josephus and Tacitus, Quirinius, though, became the governor of Syria around 6 AD, and yet Luke seems to suggest that Quirinius was the governor of Syria at the time when Jesus was born. Dr. Plummer, how should a Christian respond to a dilemma like this one when history outside the Bible seems to contradict the Bible? Yeah, great question. I think it's always good to go back to the text, right, and to read it very carefully. And when we look there at Luke chapter 2, verse 2, you read it says this was the first census right, the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So even in acknowledging it in Greek, the word prote, the adjective prote, it seems to indicate there was a second census, right? And so no one denies there was a census around the year 6 AD, but the question is, is there an earlier census? And Luke reports that there is. The second thing is if you look at the Greek text of this, it doesn't actually use a technical term for governor. It doesn't use prefect or procurator or even the noun for governor. It uses a verb. He was ruling. He was leading. He was a ruler at that time. And one suggestion, I think we have to be somewhat tentative about this, we don't know all the details, but one suggestion is that Quirinius did have a leadership role under the governor Varus at the time, and that he was probably delegated the task of overseeing this census, and then it was completed under him, and so his name became associated with both censuses. I think that's a reasonable suggestion. There's a famous archaeologist, William Ramsey, who wrote a lot in the late 1800s, who claimed that he found an inscription that spoke of an earlier governorship of Quirinius. Most people do not follow that, but again, it shows us I think we need to be humble and tentative because of our lack of knowledge of the time. Well, let's consider a few of the solutions that have been offered to this particular dilemma. The first is the possibility that Luke made a mistake. Well, I mean, I'll lay my cards on the table. Obviously, I'm a committed evangelical Christian, as you guys are too. And so for me, I come to the text leaning into its truthfulness. I believe it's truthful. It's like if I see my wife driving around town and she told me that she was going to stay home that day, I don't suddenly think, you adulteress, where are you going, you cheating woman? You know, like I trust her. And so I come to the text having spent years in it, decades in it, and I know and trust it. It's not just an experiential thing for me, but it's a thing where I've investigated a lot of questions and explored them academically, and I come to the text trusting it. But I also come as a committed Christian, so I believe it is the Word of God, and so I have that presupposition. 
Well, in another way of looking at this particular text, Quirinius ruled Syria at two different times. And that's kind of what you've suggested, that he didn't rule necessarily as a governor, but he had some responsibility at an earlier time, perhaps. Yes, I think that's a very reasonable suggestion. I think to claim that he had an earlier governorship is a lot harder to support, but that is something that has been suggested as well. A couple of other suggestions that I think have been made at different times, one of them has to do with a textual error, perhaps, in the text. There was a governor around that time named Quintilius, and there's the possibility that it was originally Quintilius in the text and was then changed to Quirinius, which that one we can understand how that could happen a little bit. Another one that's a little more difficult is that maybe Saturninus was originally in the text, but in English and in Greek, and actually more so, I think in Greek, it's pretty hard to mistake Quirinius for Saturninus at this point. But one of the things that supports that at some level is that Tertullian, actually, in his tractate Adversus Marcionum against Marcion, actually says that the governor at that time was Saturninus at that time, which is a rather interesting thing. That actually, though, would fit with what you've suggested already with the fact that maybe Quirinius had a responsibility for the area, but was not actually a governor of the area. Yes, very possibly. The, I mean, the, the governors that we know from that time, if I'm not mistaken, Sintius Saturnius was governor from 9 to 6 BC, and then Quintilius Varus from 6 to 4. So you have Saturnius and Varus kind of overlapping there. You could also call Romans usually prominent Romans went by three names, so it's a little confusing. But Quintilius, when we talk about Quintilius and Varus, we're talking about the same person. Mm -hmm. And so, again, we need some level of humility when we're approaching technical historical questions 2,000 years ago that we just have very limited sources on. Another possibility that some scholars have suggested is that the word translated first should actually be translated before. So this text should read, and this was the census before the census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. What are the strengths and weaknesses of this possibility? This looks to me like a tortured reading of the Greek. It's an attempt to provide an explanation that is not really grammatically convincing. You'd have to move around several words and really use an unlikely meaning of one particular word in that text. And yet that's probably one of the most common ones I read in apologetics blogs and things like that. And it's part of the reason I wanted to bring it mm. up because I mm. think it is such a weak solution to this. And there are other better solutions to this at that point. Yeah. And when, when someone's telling you that the proper translation of the text is different from every modern printed Bible, then that should have some alarm bells possibly going off in your mind that, hey, this may be, and I'm not a fan of twisting or distorting the text. I'd rather say, I don't really know an answer to that rather than to come up with a strange and unconvincing answer. Yeah, in the end, in the interest of making an explanation, if we make a bad argument, then actually we do harm to the cause of trying to have these honest conversations of history and what is in Scripture. Reminds me, when I was working on a book one time, I, I ran across a quote, and it said that Bruce Metzger said that the text of the New Testament was over 99% certain. And I thought, wow, Bruce Metzger said that? That's amazing. I want to find that. I couldn't find it. And the evangelical who wrote this, I contacted him, Where, where'd you get this? And he goes, well, it's kind of a, you know, an implication of this and this and this. 
And it was clear it was not what was said. And then I Googled it, and I found that Muslim websites were using this to show how Christians were distorting the truth to support their scripture. And so if we lie about the Bible, if we twist things to give a, a you know, pat or quick answer, that in the end, that's not supporting truth. That brings us to something that I think is important, and that is how should we as pastors preach this text? And what I mean by that is not merely how should we preach it and how we should exegete it, but how should we bring up these real and authentic issues in the text in the context of our preaching? And when we do that, how should we present this to the people? Yeah, this is that's a great question. I'm not a huge fan of raising historical issues in sermons a lot of the time, although I think there's a place for it. I think it should be a side note. It should be presented in such a way that doesn't leave people feeling that they have more questions unanswered than they had coming in. But when I'm preaching through a text, I'm really saying, what is this biblical author really seeking to teach his audience, the people reading his text, people hearing it read? What does he want them to go away thinking that God has done in the world? And so I'm inclined to answer those questions more in like a Bible study setting or in a one-on-one. Someone emails you, hey, I got read this in the newspaper. I mean, I think I've only been asked about this text historically one time. And, you know, I've taught a lot of students New Testament. But sometimes things do arise for people, and we want to be prepared to answer them. Or if we don't have an answer, we say, I don't know. Let me get back to you. And it's never been easier to investigate these questions. And I think one of the worst ways we can do this in preaching is to lay out all the options oh, for yeah. the people. Totally. So if we are convinced, as as I am as well, that this is more to do with Quirinius having some sort of delegated authority, but not being the governor of Syria at this time, just tell people that. We don't need to lay out all 10 options or however many options there are for people to choose from. That leaves them with more questions and more confusion. State the one that we believe is most convincing and then be ready and willing afterward at some point to have a discussion with somebody afterwards. But we don't need to unload all of this upon the people that God has given us to shepherd and to pastor and to preach to week by week. I completely agree with that, and I think that when you come to this text, what I might want to leave behind with the people, rather than trying to resolve potential historical problems, is the historicity of it. I'm like, Luke doesn't begin once upon a time, right? He says, this guy was in this role in the government, this guy was in this role, this is what was happening in space and time, and it's clear that this is a historical report. This is not a fairy tale. And it's good for people to be hit with that. They've maybe seen it so many Christmas plays, you know, the Peanuts Christmas special. It's all kind of this, it's just this feel good. No, this really happened. And so people need to be hit with that. Well, this brings us to the time in our program when we must undertake the most daring task that we undertake each week, which is to reach within the infinity gauntlet. And so each week, Garrick Bailey reaches within the depths of the Infinity Gauntlet and draws forth a question that is one of the great questions of humankind, and the question this week is... This one requires a bit of setup, so two average Joes, or Janes, get a hold of two artifacts from our fantastical universes. Just two normal people with no special training, but they end up picking up from this treasure chest a lightsaber 
and a vibranium shield. And then they get into a fight, because why wouldn't you? Who would win? Who has the advantage as a weapon in this fight? The so we are bringing together two universes, universes, as always, which is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in which vibranium is this natural metal, which is the strongest metal upon the Earth, with a lightsaber from the Star Wars universe, and they go into battle against one another. Which one of these is more powerful and which one wins and why? I'm going to say the lightsaber, because what I see in my mind is in episode one of Star Wars, when they go up on the Trade Federation ship, and then Qui-Gon Jinn, he sticks the lightsaber in that huge door. I mean, all these levels of doors, it just melts the whole thing away. So that's, I think it's going to win. I'm going to vote for the Vibranium Shield. So I'm going to have to go with that because the Vibranium Shield is able to absorb energy. And so the Vibranium, it absorbs the energy and is able in some sense to send the energy back out somehow. We don't know exactly how this happens. But I think that the energy even of that lightsaber gets absorbed into the Vibranium Shield. And so I say Wakanda forever. Vibranium wins. Of course you do. I would actually tend to agree with you in this case, I guess, without knowing what the blast door is made out of in episode one. If later we find out that it is also vibranium or something similar, then I would change my answer. But but I would agree that in this case, I think give me the shield. Although I would say that the person just randomly swinging a lightsaber versus a person that only has a shield that just in that case, the person might get lucky and take off a leg or, you know, have a dismembered like person underneath a really nice vibranium shield. It's very possible. Very possible. <laughs> so kind of like that Monty Python yeah. scene where the knight gets his legs cut off. It's one of the greatest human inventions and one of the supreme expressions of God's common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with Bob Dylan and ended with Pearl Jam. And that is why each week in the second half of the program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for truth in classic rock. This is Timothy from the 1970s. And this is Garrick from the 1980s. And this week, we'll be talking about a biblical perspective on immortality and life after death. And to do that, the song we're going to be looking at is The Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics. Mike and the Mechanics is a spinoff of the band Genesis. Now, the genesis of 
Genesis yes. was in 1967. And by the way, their first album was from Genesis to Revelation it was Genesis's first album. Genius. But it's Genesis Genius at that point. And so they were formed in 1967 by some students at a preparatory school in Surrey, England, that was known as Charterhouse. And this included Peter Gabriel was there, Mike Rutherford, several different people got together, formed the band Genesis. And then three years later, after that, Phil Collins joined the band Genesis. The band Genesis and Phil Collins, I do have many warm feelings towards, including one that's, this is partly a secret. I can't give all the details, but there was a group I was a part of in high school. And this group, we engaged in certain legal team building activities together. And once a week, at the end of the week, we would do this big thing together and we would have a meeting during the week, you know, kind of before the big event. And part of that meeting every week, we would sit in a room and we would play in the air tonight. I know it doesn't seem like a real pump up song. I mean, it isn't, but you know, you're not going straight to the event. You don't need adrenaline going. It was this focused, intense connecting with the crowd around you. And and so I still, to this day, I'll be driving in the car as a 41-year-old man, and that song will come on, and I'll get goosebumps. Like, the hair on my neck will still stand up. That's ridiculous, I understand, but it is what it is. So Mike and the Mechanics actually happened because Phil Collins had a successful solo career. And at the times when he was away doing his solo thing, then Genesis would not be active. And so Mike Rutherford and some others got together and formed this band called Mike and the Mechanics. So Mike and the Mechanics released an album entitled, not surprisingly, Mike and the Mechanics in 1985, which means they were one year short from being a part of the greatest year in rock and roll history. But that's okay. They were paving the way, if you would. But one of the singles from that album was All I Need Is a Miracle. which hits number five on the Billboard charts in what year? 1986. Greatest year ever. All I Need is a Miracle came out in 1986, the miracle year. I was about to say, because <laughs> because 86 was a miracle, so they got it. Fantastic. And so then the follow-up to that album in 1988 was this album, The Living Years. And the song, The Living Years, was written by Brian Robertson, and his father had recently passed away. But when he heard it, Mike Rutherford of Mike and the Mechanics, it really resonated with him because a couple of years earlier, he'd been out on tour, got a call at three o'clock in the morning and his father had died. His father had passed away and he was feeling a lot of regret. His father had been a captain in the Royal Navy. His father was supportive of him. His father would come to their concerts when he was in Genesis with his gunnery earplugs in from the Navy, (laughs) which is just great. His father would come to these concerts, but he realized that he and his father never really experienced love, affection for one another that they really showed outwardly. He also had some guilt. He had bought his parents a cruise every year, but not really spent time communicating with them, giving them things, but not really connected with them. And so this song about the death of a father, it expressed a lot of the feelings that Mike Rutherford was going through experiencing at this time. I know that I'm a prisoner to all my father household dear. I know that I'm a hostage to all his hopes and fears. 
is I just wish I could have told him in the living years. So what we're going to focus on today is a popular but false view of life after death. And you kind of see it in this particular song. This song begins with a dilemma of conflict between the generations. It says every generation blames the one before and all of their frustrations come beating on your door. But then it moves from there to the reality and to the pain of death is what the song moves on to. It kind of starts in the place where Cats in the Cradle has us, right? Remember when we had that conversation? But yet it moves beyond that. One of the lyrics says, I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away. I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say, but I think I caught his spirit later that same year. I'm sure I heard his echo in my baby's newborn tears. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. And so these are powerful words that really do capture the pain of longing and regret when a parent dies. But there's also in here some hints of a popular but very false perspective on the afterlife, because the idea is that what comes after this life is a spiritual existence. It's almost a hint, maybe even of an idea of reincarnation. You can't really tell for sure on that, but certainly a spiritual existence where somebody lives on as a spirit, sort of lives on in memories or lives on in his descendants, this idea right here. And we have this so often in our culture and even among Christians, because at funerals, I've heard people say things, people who are Christians and perhaps should know better say things like, well, he lives on in our memory. He'll never really be dead because his spirit will always be with us. Or what I call the Lion King variation. He lives on in you. Living on forever as a spirit, this is not a biblical idea. In fact, really, this idea comes from an ancient Greek concept, right? Yeah, it really does. And in the Greek way of looking at things, death is really an escape into a spiritual existence where the body gets left behind once and for all. And there's a move in one, a transition from a combination of spirit and body to becoming pure spirit. That's really the idea. Which really different variations, but that's where we came from. Usually we pre-existed in this perfect spiritual state, and then we spend time trapped or contained, or again, depending on who you're reading, in this physical vessel or prison even at times. Yeah, this idea of the body as the prison house of the soul that comes in. And you're right that sometimes in the Greek way of thinking of it, that there was a spiritual existence beforehand and after, and your body is just something that is temporary in between. I wasn't there that morning When my father passed away I didn't get to tell him All the things I had to say Think I caught his spirit Later that same year I'm sure I heard his echo In my baby's newborn tears I just wish I could have told him In the living years 
is a classic work that I would want our readers to be aware of, and it's by Oscar Kuhlman, and it's called Immortality of the Soul or Resurrection of the Dead. It's a little book, about 60 pages long. It's not a very long book, but I remember when I was in a master's degree and was saying something in class, I had a professor, his name was Hewlett Glower at Midwestern Seminary, and he said, you're talking Greek right there. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm talking English, actually. He said, no, no, you're, you're talking about a Greek concept. He said, you're describing this in the wrong way. Mm. You need to go read this book. And so I went to the used bookstore. I bought this 1954 edition of this particular book and read it and realized I had been operating with a very Greek concept and hadn't really understood the New Testament concept of what really we're talking about here. So how Greek is this? How far back does it go? Where does this come from? Well, it goes back even before Jesus. So it goes back very, very early, a very early Greek idea, which is that the spirit is the real us, we might say, mm. but then our body is something temporary. And what Oscar Kuhlman points out in this book is that that's not what the New Testament teaches at all. In fact, the subtitle of this particular little book is The Witness of the New Testament. And his point is, that's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament teaches a very different idea of life and death and immortality. So what he does in this book is he contrasts the New Testament idea of Jesus in the Gospels. He contrasts Jesus against Socrates. And so by putting Jesus and Socrates together side by side, their deaths, the reports of their deaths, he demonstrates how Jesus's perspective on this, the New Testament's perspective on this, differs radically from the Greek perspective on this. For all you Bill and Ted's fans, that would be Socrates. That would be Socrates, yes. The guy that is Socrates in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, that's the one we're talking about when we say Socrates. Socrates. Hey, we know that name. Yeah. Hey, look him up. Oh, it's under Socrates. Oh, yeah. In a biblical perspective, death is viewed as the enemy. And that point of death at which our spirit and body are separated is viewed as something unnatural, undesirable, and temporary. And we can go all the way back through scripture in so many different ways in that. And first to understand that death was not a natural part of life. In other words, when it speaks to us in the opening chapters of Genesis and God says to Adam and Eve, if you disobey me, you will surely die. Part of what's being communicated in that is that death is not part of your natural existence. It wasn't part of God's original design. And so death comes about as something that is unnatural because of sin. And that's why, for example, in Psalms, in Psalm 6, that the psalmist says to God, who can thank you in Sheol? In other words, in the place of the dead, where body and spirit have been separated in Sheol, God, who can possibly thank you there? His point is, this is not something desirable. It is not something natural, but also praise be to God, mm. we see that it's also temporary. Even in the Old Testament, we see it's temporary. Daniel chapter 12, it says that the many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to eternal contempt. In other words, what it's saying there, those who sleep in the dust of the earth, this very physical imagery right here, will be raised 
to life, that this separation of body and spirit is not permanent, it is not desirable, it is temporary. And that's why Paul in mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he speaks of a spiritual body, which is kind of a paradox, but he uses that paradox to let us know, look, your body will be raised from the dead. There's a physicality even to your resurrected self. And I think he puts spiritual on there to show this is a transformed body. This is a better body. This is something that God has renewed, but it is still a body nonetheless. So our future biblically is not floating around as a spirit somewhere. That's not our future from a biblical perspective. Our future is an embodied future. We were formed physically. We were formed as a body. Death results in a temporary and unnatural separation of body from spirit. But the future is that we will be resurrected, re-embodied, we might say. That is our future. Whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, that is our future. Someday we will be re-embodied. This idea of a spirit that is what we become forever is simply an unbiblical idea that's drawn from Greek philosophy, not from anything in the Bible. So my homeboy, my theological homeboy, Herman Bavink, says that the resurrection is absolutely necessary because of some of the things we've said here. Later on, He says, and this is beautiful, he says, the soul by nature belongs to the body, and the body by nature belongs to the soul. So our souls naturally, who we are, Mm -hmm. our identity, who we are, is this composite of body and soul. That is the way it's to be. And because of that, we long for, we yearn for resurrection, re-embodiment. We don't long for a mere spirit out in the future, floating around somewhere. If we are honest, we long for resurrection and re-embodiment. And I have an authority on that that is higher than Herman Bovink. And my authority- going to the Bible. (laughs) My authority on that is two movies, (laughs) Avengers Endgame and Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Okay, those are my authorities on this. Now, I went to both of those movies at the very, very first showing on the opening night of those. Now, here's what's fascinating. Star Wars Episode Eight: Yoda comes out in his force ghost glowy thing, everything like that. And everybody was like, oh, it was kind of a mild, but oh, that's, that's neat. We recognize him. In Avengers Endgame, when people are being raised and T'Challa and Shuri and all of these others who have died come back, the whole theater erupted in screaming, just yelling out, and people sat down with tears on their face. Now, think about that for a moment. What does that show? That shows we long for not merely some sort of an ongoing spirit. We long for real resurrection. That revealed to me a deep and beautiful longing in the human heart of just seeing the difference between both of these were dead and you see them new and alive in some sense, but the ones that were raised from the dead truly and come back physically, it incited rapturous responses on the part of the people seeing it. And that reminds me of Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. We talk about him quite a bit. He's another one of our theological homeboys, Bavink, Augustine, Calvin, just kind of there, our triumvirate theologically right there. 
But Augustine, this African theologian from the 5th century, he made an argument for the truth of the resurrection by saying this in essence. He said, you yearn for resurrection and you would never be satisfied if there weren't a resurrection. And I love the way he says this in, this is in De Trinitate. He says, it is altogether impossible for any life to be genuinely happy unless it is immortal. And for him, immortality, of course, includes resurrection. It's it's similar to what C.S. Lewis says when he writes, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. In my own words, to draw our gaze to something beyond what we can see. Yeah, Lewis is not saying here that just because you wish for something, it must be real. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes people misread it that way, but he's making an argument from analogy. He's saying for everything your body yearns for, there is something, some way that that yearning can be satisfied. And so in essence, he's saying to us, he says, look, if that's true about your body, doesn't it make sense that that might be true about your soul? Mm. That what you deeply long for might that actually be something that there is a satisfaction for that? But so what we see in this is that there is no satisfying resolution without a resurrection. That's what we see very clearly here, that we are not destined to be spirits floating around either in condemnation or in glory. But there is no resolution that is satisfying apart from resurrection because God has created us to be embodied beings. Right. But in this song, all we have are the living years, followed by some sort of ethereal spiritual existence. I'm afraid that's all we've got. So a lot of people hate this song. I can't because even if the music is not the greatest, perhaps, and things like that, there's still something that deeply resonates with this. And the reason I did choose this for coming to the end of the season is there's been kind of a thread working through the season of the fundamentalism and the anti-rock music that I grew up with and everything like that. And this year that the song came out in 1988-89 was just a crazy time in my life. About maybe three years before that, when I started really feeling the tension of pushing back against the fundamentalism and everything like that, I'd had an argument with my father and just had had a growing hatred since then where I literally just didn't talk to my dad. Like if we were in the same room, I refused to speak to him in any way, shape or form, unless I absolutely had to. And God and the rules of fundamentalism had gotten so entwined together in my mind that I didn't see any way to push against the rules without in essence, basically rejecting God. Mm. And I was rejecting that pushing against just a lot of anger 
toward my father, all those things like that were kind of bundled together. And I had this friend named Ben, Ben Soap, and his mom had died in a tragic car accident a few years earlier. And his dad remarried a woman named Kim, and she was not an independent fundamentalist Baptist at all. And she loved Jesus, but she was not what any of us were. And so she had no concept that rock music might be evil. She just didn't have that category or concept. And she started supplying us with cassettes of Petra and Striper and DeGarmo and Key and all of these Christian hard rock bands. So we were in this tiny fundamentalist Christian school where what had been being and was still being smuggled in and smuggled out were cigarettes, alcohol, and other things we won't talk about. But suddenly we're also smuggling in and out these cassettes. And it's yes. it, as I look back on that, and I think we would have gotten in equal trouble for having Christian rock as for the cigarettes. But that's what was happening in this. We were getting these and I'm listening to these and it opened a window in my mind that I didn't know about, that there's a different way to follow Jesus. I can reject these rules without rejecting Jesus. And so in spring of 1988, I'm outside walking across a softball field up on a hill in Wamego, Kansas, that was right next to this school. And it occurred to me, it just was a moment of clarity in which I saw, I know where my life is going if I keep going down the road I'm on. I know where it's going. It struck me, I just don't want to be this way. I don't want to be this way. I don't want it to go where I think it's going. And so I did what everybody was supposed to do at that time. I went home and I erased all of my secular music cassettes. Yes. <laughs> That's what I did, except for the Joshua Tree, because I didn't really count that as totally secular. So ah. Joshua Tree was the only survivor that I had. And I copied Christian music on top of all of my secular music cassettes. And as silly as it was, as looking back on it, it was still something I actually needed needed to do at that time just to have a detox for a while of different things that were in my life and everything like that. Well, I still didn't reconnect with my dad even after that. I just didn't know how to do it in any way, shape, or form. And each time we'd go to Walmart, we'd go to Walmart once a week at least. And when we'd go to Walmart, I would go to the TV aisle and I would turn the TVs to MTV because that was the only chance I had to watch MTV. And so I would go to the TV aisle and stand there and watch MTV. Now, in the years before, there had been things I was looking for on MTV that we won't discuss on the program with particular videos. But what had happened by this point is I was just obsessed with music. I was playing keyboards. I was just absolutely obsessed with music. I was watching MTV because I wanted to see people play music. And so that's what I was really wanting to watch in that. And so there's two different levels that changed my life. One of them was in the summer of 1988, I saw Van Halen's video, When It's Love, and decided I have to have an electric guitar. Mm. That was the threshold at that point. The other one came in about uh, January of 1989 with the living years, this particular video. And I decided I had to find a way to relate to my father. And so I just started talking to him again. No apologies. There were no words of why the last few years had been the way they'd been, nothing like that. But I just started talking to him again. And it was as a result of seeing the video of this song on MTV that that actually started. And so I just remember that. I look back on that and I thought about it in summer of 2011, my father did pass away and we were there as he passed away saying amazing grace as he passed away of a brain tumor. And in the back of my mind though, was this song, The Living Years, because of the fact that 
my relationship was restored. God worked through a secular song with a bad view of immortality actually to help restore that relationship. But I also recognize this. There is no way, as I think through that, that I can be satisfied with he lives on in our memories or he lives in you. That's not satisfying. That is absolutely unsatisfying. There's nothing that is satisfying that is anything less than the fact that I believe he will be raised from the dead in the resurrection. And the living years can never be enough to satisfy our souls, nor can some sort of ethereal spiritual presence. We need, we desire, and God created us for resurrection. So we open up a quarrel. When I finally began talking to my father again, I remember he would come to the door of my bedroom when I was playing guitar, playing keyboards, and he would simply stand there and watch. And and what I discovered, what I realized many years later was how much he himself had always wanted to learn to play the guitar. And a few years before he passed away, he bought an acoustic guitar from Aldi's of all places, and he learned to play it. And what I wish now is that I could go back to that time when I was 16 and he was standing in the door of my room, and I would invite him into the room, and we might have learned to play together. And I don't know. I don't know what the life of the resurrection will look like. But I do know that we will not be floating around as spirits. We will be enfleshed in new bodies, transformed bodies on a renewed earth. And I hope, I hope, and I kind of believe that there will be the playing of music even in eternity on this renewed earth in renewed bodies. And because I hope in that, I kind of also hope that someday I'll see him standing there in the doorway again and I'll invite him in. And we'll play the music together then that we couldn't and didn't play before. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out 3chordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up 3 Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash 3 and the Truth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on 3 Chords and the Truth.
Reach out.